Well, good morning, church. I want to say happy Father's Day. And I, uh, I want us to just meditate for a moment on, uh, on Father's Day. And I want us to think about Father's Day in terms of us having a, a heavenly father. I, I messaged my dad this morning, sent him probably the longest text I've ever sent him, and I told him that I was thankful for him because he has always been accessible to me. He has always loved me. He has always been approachable. He's always been merciful to me. He gives me confidence. He gives me, um, in many ways, unconditional love. I have never felt anxious or worried or nervous around my dad. I just never have. And I know not, not everybody has that experience with their dads, but I, I have. And at the end of the text, I simply said, I simply said, Dad, thanks for making it easy for me to approach my Heavenly Father. You have given me a picture of how I can go before the throne room of heaven without fear and without trepidation, without anxiety, because you have modeled before me what a father is. And I praise his name for your love for me in that matter. And I, I just want to ask a few questions uh, of you dads. And uh, if you want to give an answer, if you would just raise your hand and I'll call on you. Now, the first question that I want to ask is uh, kind of light, but the question is, uh, what is the greatest thing about being a dad? What, what, what are some of the best blessings about being a dad, Mark? Having children around you. Good. What else? David. Amen. The hugs. Yeah, good. Love the hugs. Wayne. Yeah. You know, you've had a tough week or a very tough day and you come home. And they're oblivious to all the stress and just, just come to you. That's it's awesome, Chris. Yeah, I haven't experienced that yet, but I'm looking forward to it, Chris. <laughs> Robbie. Yeah. Oh yeah, it's good. All right, so I've got another question. What's the hardest thing about being a dad? Mm-hmm. Yeah, failing your failing your children is hard. Yeah. What else is hard? Discipline is very difficult. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so I've got a final question. What's the most important thing about being a dad? Chris. Chris said pointing them to Christ, leading them to Christ. Can we word that in any other ways or expand on that? Yeah. Amen. You know what? I guess it was a few weeks ago now we talked about fatherhood in our Act Like Men series and we used the passage, Fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but train them in the fear and admonition of the Lord. The greatest task of a father is to point our children to Jesus Christ, to have them worship Him and love Him and enjoy Him forever and ever and ever. It's the greatest task and the most significant thing about fatherhood. And so I want us to begin... Um, our time in the word in a time of prayer and thank God for being the perfect father and, and ask um, him to help us as fathers be a picture of himself. So let's pray, y'all. It is with great privilege 
It is with great humility that we can come to you who are who is king who is holy who is high and supreme and sovereign and powerful And be able to call you Father. To be able to approach your throne with confidence today. To be able to know that you are accessible to us. That we can speak with you and not fear being punished. Oh God, we, we rejoice in being able to say, our Father, which art in heaven. And so we pause right now and revel in Your love for us and Your fatherhood to us. We want to come to You now and commit ourselves to You. And we pray for every father that is in this congregation, every father that is somehow attached to this corporate body. And Father, we would ask that you would give us the ability and the desire and the longing to represent you well in our own families and in our own communities. That when, when our kids look at us and our wife looks at us and our, and our neighbors and other family members see us, Lord, they can see a picture of you. By the power of the Holy Spirit and the working of the good news of Jesus Christ. And by the wisdom that's found in the word, we pray, Lord, that you would help us to shed ourselves from selfishness. Shed, uh, shed things like pride and, and anger and frustration and self-centeredness and self-righteousness and help us to clothe ourselves with the humility of Jesus. Help us to clothe ourselves with sacrificial love. Help us to clothe ourselves with concern for our, our wife and our children. Lord, may you, may you do a work in Redeemer Church where men are men where men are fathers and husbands who are gratefully responsible for the spiritual health of the families. And so, Father, we come right now and ask that You would do that through the working of Your Word. We pray that as our hearts intersect with Your Word, that we will all humble ourselves before You and be taught by You and be changed by You. That You might give us greater joy than what we had when we walked into this building. That You would give us greater happiness. That You'd cause us to be able to smile bigger and laugh louder. That You'd give us the opportunity to be able to be more free than we were beforehand. That You'd give us the opportunity 
to, to be able to be a blessing to more people than we were before because Your Word has changed us. Your Word has altered the way that we see ourselves and the way that we see You and the way that we see everybody around us. Lord, we ask You to come in and transform us right now. We ask You to, to transform us from one glory to the next. We pray that You would alter the way that we think. Alter the way that we believe. Lord, crush our unbelief, stamp out our lack of faith, and build up in us an, an unfaltering and an unwavering trust in Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we ask You to do this for the sake of Christ and the honor of His name. Amen. Alright, so turn your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark, the end of chapter 4. You received an email this week that said we were going to study chapter 4, verse 35, through chapter 5, verse 43. I lied. I apologize to you. We are only going to study chapter 4, verses 35 to 41. Uh, the more I studied, the more I was in, enthralled and intrigued by the last part of this chapter, and so we're just going to park at the very end. Now, last week, we studied chapter 4, verses 21 to 34. Joey Boyd brought the word to us, and in, in, that in that passage of Scripture, we really see three sections. Jesus tells a story about a lamp, he tells a story about a growing seed, and he tells a story about a mustard seed. Y'all remember us studying that last week? Joey, thank you for bringing the word to us. And, and there were a few truths that Joey brought to us from the scripture last week that were really, really important. One of, the, one of the truths was just the reality of the kingdom of God. I don't know if you remember the definition, but Joey defined the kingdom of God as the redemptive rule and reign of God in Christ Jesus. The redemptive rule and reign of God in Christ Jesus. And essentially, God's kingdom is, first of all, inside of our hearts. And then it is inside of our corporate body, the church and the universal church. But one day it's going to be over all of the earth and in all of the heavens. And one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that um, Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so what, it, what our responsibility is, is for us to steward the word of God. Joey said that. He said we must steward the word of God. We cannot allow our lives to be intersected with the Word of God and go unchanged. We have to allow the Word of God to change us every time we come into contact with it. That's what Joey instructed us to do. But, but at the same time, Joey said, we must remember that it is not our job, it is not our responsibility for the seed of the Word to grow in our lives. I don't know if y'all remember that or not, but he said that Jesus is the Lord of the harvest. Jesus is the one who causes spiritual growth. And so we must trust Him and believe Him and call on Him and pray to Him and, and say, Lord, do a spiritual work of growth in my life that the kingdom of God may be more important and more significant and more powerful in my life. And that's what Jesus was teaching in front of all those crowds that day in chapter 4. And he was preaching and preaching and preaching and telling parable after parable after parable. And thousands of people were thronged around him. And he was doing a glorious job of presenting the kingdom of God. And that's the context of where we land in verse 35. All right. Today, we're going to study verses 35 to 41. 
And if you're taking notes, then you can write down the title of the message. The title of the message is Fear or Faith. Which will you choose? Fear or Faith. Which will you choose? And I want to I want that to be a very personal question to you today. I, I mean, I, I want to call you out. Stephen, Joey, Travis, fear or faith? Which are you going to choose? Chris, Elizabeth, Elise, Mark, fear or faith? You have the opportunity this morning and tomorrow and the next day to either choose fear or faith. And you need to ask yourself, which one am I going to choose? I believe that every difficult and challenging situation in life, every single one, we have the opportunity to choose fear or faith. You know, when I was in high school, I had classmates who were better basketball players than I was. I played on the team. They didn't. Why? Because they feared the rejection of being cut from the team so much that they wouldn't even go inside the gym to try out. I have had friends growing up as a young man who, who were enthralled by a certain young woman. And they, they, they wanted so badly to pursue this young woman. But because they feared her rejection, they wouldn't utter the first word to her. I have had friends who have great professional skill in certain areas and a job would come open. But because they feared rejection, they wouldn't even fill out an application, much less go for an interview. I've known parents who have gotten a glimpse of the glory of God and His rulership and, and seen His kingdom as great and wanted to change the whole environment of their house, but because they feared the rejection of their kids and the rebellion of their kids, they just remained status quo. I, I think that we need to come face to face, y'all, with the reality that we are tempted toward fear at every turn in our life. Fear is a controlling, dominating, domineering, enslaving power in our lives. And ultimately, it's a damning power. Now, I think one of the most glorious things is that faith is also controlling. Faith is dominating. Faith is a powerful force. But instead of creating bondage in our life, it liberates us. Instead of enslaving us, it frees us to live life the way that life was intended to live. The way that God has intended us to, to function in this world. Faith allows us to be all that God has called us to be and to do all that God has called us to do and to do it with joy and to do it with, with a great sense of confidence in this life. Faith gives us the opportunity and the ability to face life head on, to, to face a disease head on 
with confidence. To face death head on with confidence. To face the loss of a job head on with confidence. To face a wayward child head on with confidence. To face problems and issues and relational problems and family problems and all kinds of problems head on knowing that he who is in me is greater than he who is in the world. And so I've got one point for you this morning. I've got one instruction, one lesson, all right, from the text we're about to read. So you note takers, take it down. Don't fear the storm. Don't fear the storm. Put your faith in the one who is sovereign over it. Don't fear the storm. Put your faith in the one who is sovereign over the storm. That's the one lesson. That's the one instruction. And that's the point that Mark is trying to make to us at the end of chapter 4. And so, let's read verses 35 through 41. On that day, the day that he's been preaching and teaching and instructing on that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion and they woke him and said to him teacher do you not care that we are perishing and he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea peace be still and the wind ceased and there was a great calm he said to them why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? I believe that there are three main parts to this event to this incident that mark wants us to see specifically and there's kind of three movements in there there's the storm there's the calm and the questions the storm the calm and the questions and let's just walk through the passage and look at those three parts to this incident under the storm we see first of all that jesus says let us go across to the other side do y'all believe that Jesus was omniscient when he walked the earth? Okay, so he was omniscient. He, he knew all things. Do you believe that Jesus knew what was going to happen on the sea? All right. Do you believe that Jesus knew what and who he was going to experience when they got to the other side of the sea? All right. So y'all tell me, what, what happens on the sea? A storm. Who did they meet on the other side of the sea, for those of you who read ahead this week? Anybody know who they, who they encounter? The demon-possessed man. All right, the man who was called Legion, right? One who has many, many demons inside of him. 
who is probably may, maybe the most scariest individual who's ever, who's ever been portrayed in Scripture. And yet Jesus says at this time, let us go across to the other side. And so as I was studying this week, the very first principle that I observed is that it is not the will of God to spare you from every uncomfortable situation, every frightening circumstance, every fear-provoking problem, and every scary or sketchy person. It's just not the will of God. If that was the will of God, He never would have sent them out on the sea. If that was the will of God, He never would have put them on the other side to experience possibly the most scariest person who's walked the land of Israel and Galilee and the Gadarenes. And so I think that we need to right off the bat uh, under this heading of the storm, y'all, is we need to understand and embrace the reality that Jesus has not come to save us from difficult situations and circumstances and people, but to send us to them so that we can see them and experience them and show us how mighty and sufficient and glorious Jesus is so that we can back away from ourselves, stop trusting in ourselves, start re stop relying on ourselves, stop depending on ourselves, and essentially stop worshiping ourselves and cast our eyes on Jesus and say, Jesus, you are powerful in this moment. You are mighty in this moment. You are sufficient in this moment. Help me through the storm. Help Help me through the difficulty. Help me through this problem person. And so he says, let us go across to the other side. Now, another observation before we even really see the storm is the, the statement that Mark says other boats were with him. <laughs> OK, many of y'all have read all the accounts in the Gospels of this event. All right. How significant to the story is the statement other boats were with him? It is not significant. All right? It just really isn't. The, the other boats don't come into play somehow, really. All right? There's not this, this, this thing that goes on. Oh, that's what it was. That, that's, how, that's how this all thing works together. That's why it was important that these boats were here. No, it doesn't happen. What, what Mark is showing us is that this is an eyewitness account. Uh, you know, back in ancient days, y'all, if you were telling a story, if you were giving a narrative, if you were writing a story for kids to read or for adults to read, you didn't include extraneous information. Everything that you wrote down had a very specific purpose to it that was leading you to an end. But Mark in the story tells us that other boats were around. And when it tells that Jesus was asleep, it says that his head was on the cushion. It gives us all this other information that is not necessary. And, and, and I just want to bring that up to you guys to say that this event happened. I mean, it, it, is, it is a real event that, that Peter witnessed and the other disciples witnessed and they're relaying it to Mark and saying, you just wouldn't believe. I remember it like it was yesterday. Jesus' head was on the pillow. The boats were around us. And then all of a sudden, so I'm just saying that we can trust His Word. We can trust the Word of God. And so, he says, Mark says, a great windstorm arose. It's not just any windstorm. It was the windstorm of windstorms. I mean, it, it, th this word windstorm actually can be, can be sometimes translated as a hurricane, a cyclone, or a whirlwind. And this was not uncommon necessarily on the Sea of Galilee because the Sea of Galilee is really low. It's almost like a basin. It's like 700 feet below sea level. 
But then about 30 miles north of it, there was Mount Hermon. And if I'm not mistaken, Mount Hermon is like nine or 10,000 feet above sea level. And so you have these mountains that are all surrounding the Sea of Galilee, and it would often create storms that would just come at the middle of the night just like that. And this is one of those storms. But y'all, this wasn't just merely a rainstorm. This wasn't just a, a hard rain. The wind is blowing. It's howling. It is hurricane-ish. It is a devastating storm. And so Mark says the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. I mean, it is scary. The guys are thinking, even though they're, many of them are professional fishermen, they've been out in storms before, they're thinking this thing is going to sink, it's going to capsize, we're going to be hurled overboard at any moment. I mean, here we are hanging on for dear life. And Mark says, Jesus was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. I just, it's like, who could possibly have the ability to sleep in a moment like this? <laughs> I mean, what, you know, the storm is raging. All right, the, the wind is blowing. The boat is feeling, filling up. Things are falling down. Grown men are screaming. And Jesus' head is on the cushion. And so I just, I asked, I asked two questions. I said, how could Jesus sleep at this point? And why could Jesus sleep? And why would he sleep? And I think the answer to the question, how could he sleep, is pretty simple if you look at the life of Jesus. Jesus did not fear death. He did not fear trouble because he had perfect and complete confidence in his father. And so he could go to sleep in the most difficult and trying and unnerving of circumstances. All right. Why could he sleep during this time? Yo, I think that he could sleep because. Because he wanted to demonstrate what faith in God really was like. He wanted to demonstrate to the disciples ultimately that he is sovereign over the wind and the waves he wanted to demonstrate to the disciple the disciples what a life of peace and and hope really is but i think when it boils right down to it the very reason that jesus was sleeping is because he was exhausted guys he, he's been spending day after day in preaching and teaching and healing and loving and explaining and being patient with the disciples. And I don't know, for those of you who have done preaching and teaching and, and, and long bouts of ministry, it is absolutely exhausting. I know that Bradley Pinkerton and Bob St. John came back from Peru last week. I think it was last Saturday. And I don't know what Bob did, but I know that Bradley came in and crashed and slept and slept and slept because ministry was that difficult in Peru and that taxing. And that's exactly what Jesus was doing here. Now, I want us to take confidence in this because that Jesus needed to sleep, that he needed to rest. What does that tell us about his nature? He was human being. He was a real human being. And, and he experienced weakness. He experienced fatigue. He experienced exhaustion. He experienced temptation and testing in the midst of his exhaustion and in the midst of his being tired. And, and he knew what it was like to feel all of the, the tugs and the temptations when you're tired. 
And I think it would be good for us right now to just pause and understand that we do not have a great high priest who is unsympathetic with our weaknesses and with our fatigue and with our tiredness and with our exhaustion, but He has been tired and exhausted in all ways that we are. And we can call on Him. And not only does He know about our fatigue and our exhaustion and our struggles and our trials objectively, but subjectively, experientially, Jesus is in heaven looking at us and saying, I know how you feel. I know what you're experiencing right now. I've been there. I know how tough it is. I know how difficult it is. I know how tempting it is to just check out. I know how tempting it is to just veg out. I know how tempting it is just to tell everybody to get lost because you're exhausted. And so I want you to know I sympathize with you. And I think that, that's one thing that Mark wants us to teach us here is that we have a sympathetic high priest because he's a man. I want you to look that in this storm, the disciples have a rotten, wrong attitude. They say, teacher, do you not care that we are dying, that we are perishing? And I just want you to know that this question is not so much a question as it is an accusation. That's what this is. This is an accusation. All right? It, it reveals the disciples' anger, their frustration and fear and anxiety and confusion and panic. And if, and if they elaborated on what they were thinking, they would say something like, we've seen the amazing work of your hands. We've seen how you care for people in need, people in poverty, people in sickness, people in paralysis. You've cared for them personally. You've cared for them powerfully. And yet here we are about to be swept away by the sea. We're your closest followers, your most, your most loyal disciples, and you don't care anything about us in this moment. That, that's their attitude. You have no compassion for us. You don't love us. You don't know what's best for us. And you don't want what's best for us. And I want to tell you what, what is beneath that, that accusation. It's a conclusion that we cannot trust you. We cannot put all of our faith in you. We can't believe you. That's what this is. Now, do you realize that Jesus could have prevented the storm before it ever happened in the first place? Yes, y'all do. Y'all have already said that because he's om omniscient. He could have spared the men from the storm. And so I want to ask a question that I would invite your involvement in. This is the question. Why would a good and gracious Savior allow his disciples to experience such a terrifying moment so that they could see his grace and his mercy and his power. That's absolutely true to expose their fear. To expose their fear. And to test their faith. And to increase their faith. All right. And I think that that Jesus wants to do that very thing in our lives all the time. He wants to expose what we are terrified of. He wants to expose what we're nervous and anxious about. He wants to expose that we've got stuff going on in our hearts that makes us so nervous and so terrified that we become almost 
non-functional, and He wants us to show us that out here on this platter to reveal to us our heart and to test our true and authentic faith in Him. And then He wants to show us how faithful and powerful and mighty He is over every circumstance and every person so that it'll increase our faith and trust in Him. And so that's what's going on here on the sea. And that's the first element that Mark wants to show us, the storm. Now let's look at the calm. The calm is just seen in verse 39. It says, He awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. I just want you to know that when I was a kid uh, in the summertime, like in June, like it is right now, we would often get all the kids in the neighborhood over to my house. And I would even invite some friends over. Mom, could we have so-and-so over and everything? We'd play like these big games of wiffle ball, you know, like five on five or six on six. And man, it was just glorious days. We'd go down to the cement pond and swim. And it was, it was just so much fun. But the biggest bummer was always when we were playing or we were having the wiffle ball, and it was in the third inning, and all of a sudden we heard a rumble. And what's that rumble? Thunder. And, and, then, and then off in a distance we might see a strike or a flash of lightning, right? And it would start raining oftentimes. And what would our mom make us go, uh, go do? Go inside. Stop playing. Get out of the pool. Go inside. And that was a huge bummer for me. And so my house had uh it's the front part of my house had these huge windows they're probably six or seven feet high and i always had a couch in front of those windows and i would go inside very down about it and i would get on my knees facing the back of the couch and all those big windows and i would watch the rain come down and i would watch the lightning strike and i would hear the thunder and i would be so discouraged that i would literally begin to talk to the weather i would I would be, and I'm not exaggerating, I'd be like, rain, stop now. <laughs> I would, or lightning, quit. And then when it wouldn't happen, I'd say, oh, I'm going to wait 10 seconds. All right, I'm wait 10 seconds. Stop, rain. All right, and, and, and I would do that for minutes and minutes and minutes, and then, it, you know, it never worked. But if I stayed in front of that big window long enough, you know what eventually happened? It quit. It quit. And you know why it quit? Because God promised never to flood the earth again. You know, I mean, that's really why it quit. But it had nothing to do with me. But I was trying to, to influence the weather by talking to the weather. And there's only one individual in all of the universe who can do that. Who is that? Jesus Christ. God Himself. And that's what goes on here, which is what is the, one of the most astonishing and, and stopping things for these disciples. That he actually speaks to the weather and says, peace and be still, and it actually happens. And one thing that we can easily get, we can easily miss, y'all, in this passage and in this account of the calm is that Jesus not only talks to the storm itself, but also to the sea, so that the rain stops, the wind stops, but also... In a, in a storm normally, and, and oftentimes the, the, the waters will, will remain tumultuous. 
the, the, the waves will keep being choppy. And it'll do a lot of times it's worse damage right after the storm than right during the storm. But in this case, Jesus speaks to the sea to such a degree that it becomes completely flat, just like a mirror. So that if Anthony and I were in the boat that day, we could look over the side of the boat and we would have been able to see ourselves in the water. It was so calm and so still. And that's the power of Jesus. That that's how he works. And so the disciples are completely enamored by this. They are scared to death from it. But I want us to think about this one principle right here, y'all. Write it down. Nothing is impossible with Jesus Christ. Nothing is impossible with Jesus Christ. You can throw all of the statistics out, all of the charts, all of the graphs, all of the logic when Jesus shows up because He can do whatever He wants to do. Jesus has infinite power. Uh, what are the odds that I take a vacation in Gatlinburg, Tennessee as a 22-year-old struggling individual and walk into a bookstore in Pigeon Forge and go immediately to the sale rack and got like five or seven dollars almost to my name and find a book for $2.99 about the gospel, pick it up, pay for it, and read it, and it changes my life forever. What are the odds of that? Right, just looking at, at Wayne and Rebecca, what are the odds that a, a, a young man from Toronto and a young woman from Alexandria, Alabama meet in Texas at a college, ultimately marry, and are in many ways liberated from a life of legalism to joyful praise and worship where grace abounds in a home. What are the odds of that? What are the odds, Robbie, that a young man who loses his brother and his best friend in a senseless murder is not calloused to the things of God and hardened to the gospel of God, but 15 years later actually raises his family in the worship of God. We could go on and on. I want to tell you, it doesn't matter what the odds are because nothing is impossible with Jesus Christ. Not one thing is impossible. So let's believe Him. Let's trust Him. Let's, let's put our lives in His hands. All right, so that leads that the power of Jesus leads us to the final part, the questions in verses 40 and 41. And, and Jesus has two questions and the disciples have one. Look at the two questions that Jesus asked. So why, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? I, I think that these questions of Jesus reveal a few things. They reveal a couple things about Jesus and they reveal at least one thing about the disciples. All right, the first thing that I believe it reveals about Jesus is that even in the midst of unbelief, even in the midst of lack of faith, even in the midst of cowering down to circumstances, Jesus is gentle with his disciples. He does not rebuke them harshly. He does not say, jump out of the boat. You're not part of this team anymore. I'm going to go get more disciples who are going to believe in me and trust in me and follow me valiantly for the rest of their lives. He, he doesn't do that. He doesn't discipline them. He just simply says, do you still have no faith? 
Where are you guys? Think about this. It's a very gentle answer. It's a very, it's a very subtle rebuke. It is gentle and kind in nature. And y'all, I just want you to know that when you're paralyzed with fear and you're struggling to believe, I want you to know that Jesus is going to be gentle with you. I, I know that I've struggled with fear and anxiety in my life and oftentimes I hesitate to go to Christ and go to His throne because I know He's going to be so disappointed with me and He's, and he's likely going to be harsh with me. And that is a lie. That is Satan trying to accuse Jesus to me. And I want to tell you that from this passage we can see that He is gentle with those who don't even believe. And he's like the, like the man in the Gospels who says, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Jesus knows that we're riddled with unbelief and He just simply wants us to trust Him and believe in Him more. I think the second thing that reveals is that Jesus prioritizes faith in the lives of His disciples. Jesus prioritizes faith in the lives of His disciples. Y'all, don't miss this. Don't miss it. Because you and I are so apt, so inclined to judge our Christianity and our walk of faith on external things. How we dress, how we look, how we sound, how we talk, what we do for other people, the impression that we leave with other people. We are so inclined to judge our walk with Jesus on that. And notice that Jesus doesn't say, okay, I've calmed the storm. We're about to go meet a group of people on the other side who really need to see in us cleanliness, who really need to see in us that we've got our act together, who really need to see in us that we are a group who, who, who has all our stuff in a row. He never says that. He confronts their lack of faith. Never confuse the priorities of Jesus. He is most concerned with your heart. He is most concerned about whether or not you're going to trust Him. Whether or not you're going to believe Him. Whether or not you're going to stake all of your life and all of your future and all of your family's life and all of your family's future on who He is and what He's done and what He's going to do in the future. And so He prioritizes faith today. And then I just think the third thing that it reveals about the, uh, this is about the disciples is that they were paralyzed with fear because they had a lack of faith. They were paralyzed with fear because they had a lack of faith. And so they did not have a genuine and full and robust trust in Jesus as Savior. And it created paralysis in the midst of a difficult circumstance. Mark poetically leaves us, leaves this account with this, this provoking question. Look at verse 41. And they were fill, filled with great fear. I think it's safe to say that they were more afraid after the storm calmed than they were during the storm. And Mark simply ends the story by saying that they said to one another, Who then is this? That even the wind and the sea obey Him. They were actually pretty comfortable with Him reaching out and restoring a man with a withered hand. They were pretty comfortable with Him casting out 
uh, an unclean spirit in a person. They were comfortable in helping a paralyzed man get up off of the mat and walk because they could somehow in their minds see that this guy's got special power, that God has touched him. But then when they see Jesus stop the wind and stop the sea and still it all, they realize that they're dealing with someone and something far greater than what they ever imagined. And y'all, we need to understand ourselves that when we attach ourselves to Jesus, when we say we're followers of Him, He is something greater and powerful and more mightier than what we ever thought or imagined. And we need to get comfortable with that. And we need to expect Christ to do similar and more glorious things now than He did then because of the power of His Holy Spirit. All right. So those are really the three movements there. It's the, the storm, the calm, and the questions. And I want to give you two applications. Two applications. I want you all to hang in here with me this morning. I think I've been preaching about probably 40 minutes, but I really believe that this is where, I believe this is where it can come home to you. The two applications are put off fear and put on faith. Put off fear and put on faith. And you can write those side by side one another if you're taking notes. You can just kind of make notes underneath each of those headings, however you want to do it. But under put off fear, I first want to begin by reading to you a story, a a true account. Two months after bravely confronting a scissors-wielding store robber, saving a woman's life, and overcoming his own injuries, Don Clendenin was routinely entering his own home with fear-knotted stomach, creeping around his house, checking under the beds, in the closets, the bathroom, the back stairs, convinced someone was waiting to jump out at him. He had entered a pet store two months before to discover a young woman on the floor being stabbed repeatedly by a thief. He had instinctively rushed to her defense. In the ensuing struggle, Don was stabbed in the neck, but managed to scare off the intruder. Both he and the lady recovered from surgery, physically fine, but the nightmares would not go away. For the first time in his life, Don was fearful and distrustful of people generally. Ten minutes in the past was dominating Don's present and future. One evening, Don's wife said to him, some terrible things happened in those minutes, but now it's time to think about how God figured in them. They began to talk about the coincidences, the quote-unquote coincidences of that fateful morning. His going to the store instead of his wife going. Arriving at the exact moment of the robbery. Receiving a wound in his neck one quarter of an inch from his jugular vein. Yet scaring the man off. All these things in hindsight showed that God had had a purpose for good for all of those involved. And after seeing himself in the broader purposes of the Lord and realizing afresh God's control of all things for the good of his people, Don's fear gradually faded and he was able to get on with his life 
with confidence in God. You know, we are prone to fear for all the wrong reasons. There's a a study done among 4,000 fighter pilots in World War II. And they were quizzed about their feelings prior to going into a combat flight. The result of the study showed that the symptoms that they experienced prior to going into combat were similar to the symptoms that people have when they have stage fright. Listen to what they experienced. 4,000 fighter pilots in order of, of uh, the, the top six. This is what fighter pilots in World War II experience. A pounding heart. Muscular tension. Irritation, anger. Dryness of mouth. Perspiration. Butterflies in the stomach. Can you all identify with any of those? See, what happens is that messages from the brain send out hormones throughout our body that are designed to help us deal and cope with the fear that we're experiencing and oftentimes to prepare us for that. Y'all, I just want you to know that in a lot of ways that's God-given. You're going into a potentially death circumstance. And so your body is preparing for this, this potential death and knowing that you've got to act in a certain way. But I think that there is an issue when all of those kinds of things happen when a preacher is about to come up and preach and all of this stuff goes on physiologically. Or when a woman sees a mouse scurry along in her room and all of those symptoms come. Or when a man who is scared of heights um, has to climb up to the second floor of an apartment building or something like that. And all of this fear and this anxiety and these physiological symptoms happen. I think what, what's going on is a significant amount of fear that is unwilling to deal emotionally and spiritually and intellectually with the reality of the circumstance. Let me tell you a problem that we have. When a circumstance that we fear begins to come upon us, we too often throw out an uncritical mindset. We throw out the wisdom that God provides us and we allow our emotions and our idolatries to take over. I was at Starbucks last night and one of my friends came by to say hi. He asked me what I was studying and I told him, I was studying the reality of fear and the call to faith. And, and unprovoked, my friend told me, he says, you know what I found out about fear in my own life? Fear exposes my idolatries. And what I want the most, when it looks like it's not going to happen, I begin to fear. And when I begin to fear, I get angry, I get anxious, I get nervous, and I get upset, and I begin to... I begin to to, to cower down and I stop loving God and I stop loving people and I get self-centered and introspective and there I have a paralysis of life altogether. And so, under put off fear, I want to give you 
a few ways in which you can do this. Because I, I know, I know every one of you have fear to some degree and to some nature. And so I think the first thing for you to do today and this week is to identify your fears. Take some time to identify your fears. What do I fear the most? If I have a, a top five list, what five things in this world and in my life and in my family am I most fearful of? What kinds of thoughts come to me while I'm driving or while I'm laying down my head on the pillow at night that keep me from sleep because I'm fearful? What are those things? Let me identify those. Let me write them down. And then, after I identify them, second of all, let me examine why I have those fears. Let me examine why I have those fears. What is the cause of that? I mean, well, if my fears come true, what's going to happen? What are the devastating destructive circumstances that will be the result of my fear coming to fruition. And then I think the third thing is you need to call your fears what they are. Call your fears what they are. Idolatry. And then fourth, repent. Of bowing down to your fears. Repent. Just have a change of mind about them. Not only confess them, call them what they are, but say to God, God, I know that you are great and glorious and sufficient and powerful and able to meet all of my needs and that you're never going to leave me or forsake me. And so as I look at your sufficiency, I see my fear for what it is. Distrust of you. Unbelief in you. A rebellion against you. A rejection of your providence and your provision. And I hate what I see in myself in that way. And I right now intellectually turn from that. I emotionally want to hate that. And I ask you to help me to cling my, myself unto you. Okay? So put, put off fear. And then let's, let's look at the flip side to it. Put, put on faith. Put on faith. Um, what is faith? I, in the past, I have, I have defined faith as fully trusting in the promises and providences of God in Christ Jesus. Fully trusting in the promises and... and, and uh, provisions and providences of God in Christ Jesus. It's more than an intellectual assent. It is me getting out of the boat of self-reliance and self-dependence and self-worship. I, I can be over here in self-dependence and self-reliance and self-worship. I can be in this boat and I can say, Jesus lived a perfect life Jesus died a sacrificial death. Jesus rose from the dead on the third day. He ascended into heaven. And one day he's going to come back and rule as king of kings and lord of lords. And every knee will bow. I affirm that. And all the while I'm standing in the boat that is labeled self-dependence, self-reliance, self-righteousness. Okay? So, so what faith is, is getting into Jesus' boat 
as it were, knowing that storms are going to come, knowing that difficult times are going to happen, knowing that people are going to come into my life who are going to hurt me and reject me and hate me and be difficult toward me, and yet I'm still willing to ride in the boat with Jesus because He's all that I have. And so, I want to give you some instructions here under Put On Faith. The first thing that I want you to do is identify who Jesus is. And y'all help me this morning. Y'all help me. Who is Jesus? Talk to me. Okay, He's the Creator. Colossians 1 says He's the Creator of the world. He's truth, and so there's nothing in Him that is a lie or false or deceptive. He's light. In Him is no darkness at all. So if we want to see God, then we've got to go to Jesus because He's going to expose God to us. He's life. And so we know that there is no death in Him. There is no perishing in Him. And so that if we really want to live the way that God has intended us to live, we've got to go to Christ. We've got to trust in Christ. He's our shepherd. And though we walk in the valley of the shadow of death, we should fear no evil because He's going to shepherd us through that. He's going to walk with us through that. He's going to care for us as a good shepherd does. What did you say, Jess? He is our protector, without a doubt. He's our, he's our provision. He, he is our refuge. He, he is like a fortress for us that we can hide behind the huge walls of Jesus Christ and say, nothing can touch me eternally and ultimately because He is our fortress. Now, y'all see how this works? Yeah, Anthony. He is our deliverer. He, he rescues us from the pit of, of sin and, and hell and Satan and depravity and delivers us over into purity and righteousness and power and all of those things. Now, can you see, I don't know if this is happening for you, but as we're identifying the person of Jesus, are y'all not getting more confident as we go? Yeah, you are. Because in identifying who Jesus is, it builds our faith and it squashes our unbelief and our fear. Second of all, examine what he has done. Identify who Jesus is and examine what He has done. And so what are some objective accomplishments that Jesus has done? He has. He has defeated sin. When He was on the cross, He took on our sin and He experienced hell for us. And on the third day, He rose from the dead after He died, validating everything that He did on the cross. And so that sin no longer, Scripture says, should have dominion over you. Including fear. Including trepidation. Including anxiety that paralyzes you. Okay, so we could continue on and examine what He's done, but I think that would be sufficient. You could go on and on on your own. And so you identify who He is, you examine what He's done, and then you cast yourself upon Him. Throw yourself onto Jesus. Y'all, I think that this is one area where, where we are so inclined not to do. We, we are so domesticated. We, we are so straight-laced. 
We are so conservative in our attitude and in our demeanor that we are unwilling to prostrate ourselves before God and say, I am consumed with fear, Jesus. I I can't stand the fact that I don't trust you, but I cling to you right now and I pray that you'll fill me with hope and with trust and belief in you are who you say you are and you've done all the things the Scripture says you've done and I pray that you'd fill my heart and my mind with a complete dependence on you. I cast myself before you. And so we've got to cast ourselves upon Jesus. I mean, there have been times in my life where I've gotten alone and I have sat on a big rock in front of a stream and cried my eyes out while I was crying to God because I had no hope and I was struggling and I was emotionally a wreck. But God in those moments stilled my heart. He calmed my emotions and He built trust in Him. And I call you guys to do the same. And so you cast yourself upon Him and then finally cling to Him no matter what. Cling to Jesus no matter what. It doesn't matter whether a storm comes or whether a a hard person comes or whether you get rejected or abused or whether you get mistreated or fired or laid off. It doesn't matter. Cling to Jesus no matter what. 